Up next is Pete's Ponderings on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Pete's Ponderings is a selection of Pete's candid commentary on everyday issues for Kiwis, taken from his show, Afternoons. Listen to the live broadcast of Peter Williams' Afternoon Show at 1pm, Mondays, Wednesdays and Fridays, right here on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Today, death in New Zealand. Why is there so much of it? Then, Te Aka Fai Ora. You might know it better as the Māori Health Authority. Do we really need it? The statistics say we don't, and I have the numbers for you. Later on, some great news for a Hawke's Bay doctor who spoke out against the COVID vaccine and is non-binary or open sport really worthwhile. Your thoughts are most welcome through inbox at realitycheck.radio or you can text me on 2057. The statistics are in. New Zealanders are dying at a rate not experienced for over a quarter of a century. So why is this not headline news? Why are politicians and health authorities not holding urgent inquiries as to what's happening to the health and lives of the people they work for? Here are the facts, official facts from StatsNZ's InfoShare uh, info database. Uh, the numbers are to the end of June in the year reference. So 50 years ago, we popped our clogs quite often, a combination of, well, too many smokers and too many car accidents. The road toll in 1973 was a mind-blowing 843. A combination of that meant our death rate per thousand of population in 1973 was eight. In the next two decades, we worked hard to become healthier, live longer and not die at such a high rate. By 1983, we were down to 8.1. By 1993, by which time we were really serious about getting off the smokes, uh, the rate had dropped significantly to 7.59 deaths per thousand of population. Into the new millennium and the quest for healthier lives continued successfully. By 2003, the death rate was under 7 officially 6.96. Ten years later, it had dropped to 6.78. From 2013 and through the first year and a half of the COVID era, we still maintained a consistent number of deaths in proportion to the population in the 6.7 to 6.9 per thousand range. In the years to June 2020 and 2021, we had two of our lowest death rates on record, 6.71 and 6.56 respectively. We're pretty sure we know why. The lockdowns kept us away from each other and therefore the chance of picking up contagious illness decreased. But the trend has dramatically reversed in the past two years. In 2022, it was above seven for the first time in 22 years. The number was 7.18 deaths per thousand of population. This past year, though, has been even more disturbing. The rate shot up to 7.43, the highest since 1997 and 9.5% higher than 10 years ago. So why? What has happened in this country in the last two years which sees our death rate increasing so much? StatsNZ, whose job I always thought it was to collect data and not interpret it, commented in its press release this week that the higher number of deaths reflect New Zealand's ageing population and the impacts of the COVID pandemic. 
Can a major increase in the number of New Zealanders dying and a significant spike in our death rate to a number not seen for more than 25 years just be glibly passed off as due to an ageing population? Uh, I mean, after all, we've had one of those for quite some time, even pre-COVID in 2019. There were more than three quarters of a million of us on the pension. Then there are the impacts of the COVID pandemic. Yes, over 3,000 deaths have been attributed to COVID in the last three years, but that still comes nowhere near accounting for the extra deaths during 2022 and 2023. So don't we really need to find out why so many more people are dying in this country? What has changed in New Zealand in the last year and a half? We all know the answer to that, don't we? It's the elephant in the room. Millions were injected with the COVID vaccine, many thousands against their will, but were coerced into having it so as to keep their job or their relationships. When you discuss matters with data and statistics, there is always the issue of correlation and causation. I accept that A does not necessarily cause B. I'm not saying that the stark increase in our death rate in recent times is because so many people have been vaccinated. But surely, surely this epidemic of death must be fully investigated and all possible reasons for it examined. You're listening to Pete's Ponderings on RCR, Reality Check Radio. The supporters of the Māori Health Authority, or Te Aka Whai Ora, say that we have to have a separate by Māori for Māori agency to ensure that Māori have equitable health outcomes and because the previous public system was systematically racist. Uh, That must be the case, they say, because Māori men die on average seven years before a non-Māori. Numerous health professionals, economists and researchers have pointed out this thinking is flawed and that poor health outcomes are more the result of one's environment, lifestyle and income rather than their ethnicity. Even the Waitangi Tribunal said so back in 2001 in their report on the Napier Hospital. I quote, We conclude, therefore, that while the treaty did create an enduring right to transitional protection against particular adverse effects, it did not establish a permanent Māori entitlement to additional health service resources as distinct from that of New Zealand as a whole. Now, that was the Waitangi Tribunal 23 years ago. Attitudes have changed quite radically, you will have noticed. So have health outcomes, though. I've gone back to StatsNZ's InfoShare database. Here are some numbers. The life expectancy for a Māori male has increased from 66.6 in 1996 to 73.4 in 2018, the most recent year that numbers are available for. That's an extra 6.8 years of life, an improvement of just over 10%. In the same time period, non-Maori men have increased their life expectancy from 75.4 in 1996 to 80.9 in 2018. That's just over 7%. So the increase in life expectancy among Maori men is faster than for non-Maori. For women, the numbers tell a similar story. The life expectancy for a Maori woman increased six years or over 8% between 1996 and 2018. For non-Maori women, it was 4.7% 
just under four years. Let's consider then the country's death rates. The most recent overall death rate in the population for the year to June is 7.43 per thousand of population, as we mentioned earlier on this afternoon. But for Māori, the rate is just 5.35. Back in 2018, the numbers were 6.91 for the population as a whole and 4.9 for Māori. And all the way back to 2013, 10 years ago, it was 6.78 for the general population but just 4.18 for Māori. So I don't get this. We are told we need at great expense a separate Māori health authority to improve Māori health outcomes. Yet we have Māori life expectancy increasing at a faster rate than for non-Māori and Māori dying at a much slower rate than the population at large. Am I missing something? These numbers suggest the National and ACT Party's policies to get rid of Te Akai Fai Order are very sound and evidence-based. Check out our brand new RCR Foundation Members Club. Go to realitycheck.radio members and join now. You might have heard about this. It didn't get much attention in the press. It should have had a whole lot more. The decision from Judge Kevin Kelly of the Wellington District Court released late last week has seen Dr Alison Goodwin's January 2022 suspension by the Medical Council of New Zealand reversed. The case was filed in February of 2022. It wasn't heard for another 16 months. The announcement came late last week. Dr Goodwin is delighted. I'm very happy to have this result. It has been a long and arduous couple of years. A little bit of the background, you might know this, but let's repeat it anyway. In 2021, as the mRNA vaccine rolled out, Dr. Goodwin simply adhered to the Medical Council's pre-existing statement on informed consent, rather than its new guidance statement. She started speaking about the risks of the vaccine, alternatives and uncertainties, uh, since the public messaging was only about the purported benefits of the COVID vaccine. As a doctor for over 30 years, most recently as a GP while also training in lifestyle medicine, Dr Goodwin provided information, the majority being from official government sources to interested members of the public both online and at popular public meetings. She encouraged people to look at, among other things, information such as the MedSafe provisional consent with the 58 conditions, MedSafe's risk management plan, MedSafe's Cominati data sheet, the document granting Pfizer immunity from liability signed by Grant Robertson, the Minister of Finance, vitamin D advice, the Health and Disability Code of Rights, uh, specifically right number seven, the right to make an informed choice and give informed consent, and right 7.7, the right to refuse services and to withdraw consent to services, and also the MedSafe safety reports documenting increasing numbers of adverse events. Now, New Zealand doctors speaking out with science spokesperson Cindy de Villiers said uh, no patient of Dr Goodwin has ever made a complaint against her. Get that? No patient ever made a complaint. Instead, it was members of the public and the medical profession who heard her speak who complained, resulting in suspension of her annual practising certificate, her APC. Uh, during the preparations for the appeal, Dr Curtis Walker, the chairman of the Medical Council, provided an, uh, an affidavit with more information. He provided lists of selected quotations from comments Dr Goodwin had made 
taken out of context, most of which can be demonstrated to be correct or which provide my professional opinion or which were questions intended for discussion, said Alison Goodwin. In the correspondence, there were numerous implications and much innuendo that the information I was sharing was inaccurate, not evidence-based, not scientifically grounded, not consensus-driven, unbalanced, selective, etc., she said. However, no concrete examples were given. Dr. Walker and the Medical Council did not say this statement is incorrect, nor did they provide any evidence to counter my statements. I also asked the Medical Council what exactly is an anti-vaccination message. If a doctor doesn't recommend aspirin to a patient for whom it is not indicated and explains that to the patient, is that an anti-aspirin message? <laughs> Very good question. Uh, Dr Villiers from NZDSOS continued... We remain disturbed that the Medical Council has fought so hard to silence discussion. Doctors are people too who have the right to freedom of expression and we will keep champion, uh, championing this. Right now, however, we are thrilled that Dr Goodwin has won her appeal. It is reassuring that the courts have found again that the actions of the Medical Council were unlawful. Yet again, they are told that suspending a doctor is not an appropriate response to speech that the Medical Council disagrees with, said Dr de Villiers. As the legal counsel for Dr Goodwin stated so eloquently in his submission, the best response to speech the Medical Council disagrees with is not absolute censorship, but rather for it to have the courage and strength of its convictions. The Medical Council was free to respond in public to Dr Goodwin's speech and explain from a position of significant resources, mana and influence what it considered she had got wrong. By suspending her, the Medical Council has instead created an impression of trying to silence ideas it has no answer to, unquote. What a great submission that was. I think this court case could best be described as game, set and match to Dr. Alison Goodwin over the Medical Council of New Zealand. Six love, six love. Thank you, linesmen. Thank you, ball boys. Our text machine is now live. Send us your thoughts by texting your message to 2057. That's 2057. So get in touch with us now. The world governing body for swimming, World Aquatics, it used to be called FINA, has decided that to be inclusive, it will now introduce an open division for its racing at the World Cup events in Europe in the next few months. The first of them is in Berlin in October. The division will be open for all sex and gender identities, which is all very well, but could it be more obvious that this will still be about as exclusive as you can be for one particular type of person? That is the female to male transgender athlete because after all the swimmer is still biologically a female if uh, they swim in the open division they will surely have no chance to compete successfully against the biological males who identify as female unless of course there will actually be two types of open racing one for the male to female trans and one for female to male and then 
you're just getting rather silly and rather defeating the purpose of the whole thing. But if World Aquatics want to do this, that's just fine, except that it will take up extra time on the program because there will be races over 50 and 100 metres in all four strokes in this open division. That's eight extra events. And I imagine in some of them, there will be heats as well as the finals. Now, this concept of open or non-binary events is starting to gain some traction in sport. The world's big marathons are doing this too. Berlin, Chicago, New York, and for the first time this year, Boston all had non-binary divisions. New York actually offered prize money to any non-binary who could finish in under three hours, ten minutes. Only two did... Uh, and the winner, who ran 2 hours 45, took home $5,000. But as I've said numerous times when discussing this issue, the noise the transgender community makes is out of all proportion to their actual numbers. In Boston, 30,000 runners go to the start line. But virtually all of them have had to have posted a qualifying time to get into the field. Out of 30,000 Boston Marathon runners, there were in the non-binary division... 27 athletes. Yes, 27 out of 30,000. Two were allowed in because they promised to raise at least $5,000 for charity. The rest had to meet the qualifying time. The qualifying time for a woman. So in the 18 to 34 age group, the non-binaries had to have run a marathon in three hours, 30 minutes or less. While in the men's division for that age group, the cutoff was three hours. One of those who ran Boston this year was Kel Kalamia. Now, Kel identifies as non-binary transmasculine. I don't know what that actually means, but looking at pictures, uh, looking at pictures rather of Kel, I suspect that Kel was born a male. Anyway, they can run a marathon in less than three and a half hours, and Kel says they don't have to choose between running and their gender identity which is a most intriguing way of expressing your conundrum. As a one-time, very slow marathon runner, my choice was not about between running and gender, but a far more binary choice between running and not running. But if Boston and New York and other world-famous marathons are now having non-binary divisions, the concept is sure to make its way to a very woke New Zealand sometime soon. It's really just another way for slow male runners to get a bit of extra attention for athletic achievement they don't really deserve. You're listening to Pete's Ponderings on RCR, Reality Check Radio. A couple of pieces of feedback which have come in in relation to my opening rant this afternoon about this epidemic of death which is sweeping across New Zealand, our death rate per thousand of population significantly higher than at any stage in the last 25 years. Peter McDougall writes, Is this government scared to admit that the lockdowns and or the division of the vaxxed and the unvaxxed caused a lot more damage to the New Zealand population than they are prepared to admit? Mental health increasing, the rate of violence and suicide, people who couldn't be treated for illnesses such as cancer, heart disease, etc. because of hospitals being largely closed for the crazy amounts of COVID-19 cases to be admitted that didn't happen. The high death rate will stay as it is for a number of years to come. 
Peter, you may well be right. Uh, Mark Heatherbell writes, Hi, Peter, I know that you can't really say that the COVID vaccine has been killing people, but I can. All indications are that the COVID vaccine will cause more deaths than catching COVID virus. And there is some motive for this because countries are finding it harder and harder to pay for old people's pensions. Governments would justify this as being in the national interest. Uh, Mark, that's what I would call a pretty extreme view, an extreme opinion, but one which you are entitled to hold and one that uh, we're prepared to share with others. Thank you for your feedback. Uh, you can get in touch inbox through realitycheck.radio or via text at 2057. RCR is on a mission to revive Honest Media, and now you too can be an integral part of it by joining the RCR Foundation Members Club. Receive exclusive benefits only available to club members, including your own backstage pass to join the hosts for interactive behind-the-scenes discussions, along with our all-new daily curated news summary, RCR Bytes, that's delivered to your email box every morning, keeping you on the pulse of the news that matters in just a few minutes per day. To find out more, visit realitycheck.radio slash members to see how you can join the mission that's making a difference. Well, you can see why David Seymour wants to get rid of the Ministry for Pacific People's Country. It doesn't do anything, because if it did do something, it would surely tell everybody about it, wouldn't it? That's why the Ministry, after all, employs nine communication staff, three permanent and six contractors. The total cost for their salaries and contract fees came to $967,944 in the financial year to the end of June last year, 2022. That's an average of $193,000 each, which frankly is a ludicrous amount of money to be paying a government department spin doctor. But maybe they work really hard and do deserve the money. How could I be so naive to have such a thought? You see, this highly paid communication staff have in the past five years put out precisely no press releases. Yep, absolutely none. The Minister for Pacific Peoples put out a few, but not the Ministry itself, which begs the question, just what does the Ministry for Pacific Peoples do that its communication staff need to communicate with everybody about, but don't? It seems not much except organise expensive farewell parties for the departing chief executive, who then, of course, has another party to welcome him to his new job in another government department. I mean, you couldn't make this stuff up. David Seymour is absolutely correct. This MPP, the Ministry for Pacific Peoples, has to go, like the Ministry for Women and any other department which doesn't actually achieve anything. So maybe those communication staff at the Ministry for Pacific People should start looking for a new job because they're unlikely to have an employer by Christmas if the leader of the ACT Party is true to his word. And if they get a job as well paid as this one, sadly, it will only be at one place, another government department. You're listening to Pete's Ponderings on RCR. Reality Check Radio. I have a wee tip for the National Party. Just keep Sam Uffendell in the cupboard until after the election. 
and preferably after that as well. You see, the member for Tauranga is becoming an embarrassment. We all know about the stories that were dredged up about his youth stories which were completely unfair to him and are best described as a beat-up. But then, after a period of relative quiet, he was back in the spotlight with more foot-in-the-mouth disease. Uh, We know what he was trying to say when he said in the house that he did the supermarket shopping once a week to give his wife a break. But, you know, that could hardly have been expressed in a more clumsy way. Now he's posted on Instagram some footage of a campaign meeting where he's talking up the National Party education policy. Now, this is just plain stupid. The guy might have gone to King's College and then Otago University and the University of New South Wales, but he looks like the classic case of somebody with a privileged education who did not learn to spell. Now, I'll confess I'm a pedant. I can't stand people who can't spell properly, and I think they must be thoroughly undereducated if they cannot spell. But this guy is an MP in one of the safest seats in the country and likely to be part of the next government, although I somehow doubt he'll be in the cabinet. So here's what he posted. He wrote on this Instagram page, some touch points tonight, our curriculum, all of it, except he spelt curriculum, C-I-R-I-C-U-L-U-M. Now, I'm sorry, I would have to be very stern with a 12-year-old if they spelt curriculum like that. Then later on in the post, he writes, assessments, understanding our students and how they're doing, except he spelt they, as in they are, the abbreviation of they are as T-H-E-I-R. I mean, it's just awful. It is stupid. This is a guy who has a BCom and a BA from Otago University and a Masters of International Law and International Relations from the University of New South Wales. This man is educated, but he cannot spell. It's just terrible. It makes him look stupid. And if he didn't write this Instagram, he should have checked it before it was posted. One thing the National Party does not need is any more stupidity involving white, privileged males. Our text machine is now live. Send us your thoughts by texting your message to 2057. That's 2057. So get in touch with us now. Now, I can't finish for the week without a mention of the big sports event of the weekend, the FIFA Women's World Cup final, uh, Spain versus England. We went to the Sweden-Spain game on Tuesday night, which was a wonderful experience in Auckland. And I have to say, as someone who first went to Eden Park over 50 years ago, it was all very different this time around. The big difference compared to going to rugby tests there is that there were just so many children and families in the crowd. The great thing about this tournament has been its accessibility. As it turned out, uh, we didn't actually pay for our tickets because a friend had access to some, and she generously spread the love. But I heard that tickets to this World Cup semi-final were $40 and $20. I mean, that's how you get the punters in the gate. Uh, We took public transport to and from Eden Park. That worked really well too. You know, the only gripe I have, and it's a very small one, as a spectator in the stadium, you don't know the elapsed time of the time added on after the 90 minutes is up. On TV, of course, it counts down on the top left-hand corner of the screen. In the stadium, the clock stops at 90 minutes. So when there is seven minutes of time added on, 
you don't know how long to go. And when there's only one goal in it, I thought that would be quite useful for both players and spectators. But if that's all I've got to grizzle about, well then, I can't have too many problems, eh? What I will say is this, though. I note on the TV news the other night, because the women's event has been so successful, Australia and New Zealand should put in a joint bid to host the Men's World Cup. I think a few people need a reality check on that one. The Men's World Cup from 2026 will have 48 teams competing. So just think, how many stadiums, how many training fields, how many hotels would be required for that? The claim that we could host the men's event in a decade or so with Australia reminds me of the claims being made in Brisbane back after the 1982 Commonwealth Games, which were so successful that local officials claimed then that Brisbane could host the Olympic Games in a very short time. Well, Brisbane is going to have the Olympic Games, but it will be 50 years after the idea was first talked about. If New Zealand and Australia are going to host FIFA's big show together, it might be another 50 years away. But dreams are free. Thank you for your company this afternoon. This has been the Peter Williams Afternoon Show on Reality Jack Radio. If you'd like to get in touch, comment on anything that has been said this afternoon, uh, my address is inbox at realitycheck.radio. My text is 2057, or you can find us on Facebook. Search for Reality Check Radio and make your comments in the comments section. Have a very good weekend, everybody. I look forward to talking with you again on Monday. You've been listening to Pete's Ponderings on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Remember, you can catch Pete's full show combining smooth sounds and candid commentary on everyday issues for Kiwis and the Peter Williams Afternoon Show on our live broadcasts, 1 p.m. Mondays, Wednesdays and Fridays, right here on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Check out our brand new RCR Foundation Members Club. Go to realitycheck.radio slash members and join now.